Hello and welcome to Design Research with Imagination, a podcast from Imagination Lancaster, the Design Research Lab at Lancaster University. This episode is a conversation between Professor Paul Colton and Dr Michael Stead, where they discuss the costs of the cloud, should design always be human-centred, the right to repair and spines. Design research at Imagination is based upon different ways of doing, thinking and interacting and takes an open-ended, anti-disciplinary approach that celebrates the multitude of ways people conduct design research and how this research will be seen, heard and acted upon. Listen and enjoy. So do you want to go first or shall I, Mike? You can go first, Paul. Okay. So I'm Paul Colton. I'm the Chair of Speculative and Game Design at Lancaster University in the Design School. Um, probably it's worth saying what that means. Um, and I guess game design is probably obvious and that's what my background is, is essentially as a game designer. Uh, and speculative design is a kind of approach to design that looks at futures and particular future worlds. So in my head, maybe not anybody else's, um, they're joined together by this notion of building worlds. So in games, you build worlds, but in speculative design, you also build future worlds. And often my future worlds are, are based around emerging technologies and thinking about what wor- the world is going to be like when these technologies become every day and in our kind of mundane realities, you know, something like um, you use your car every day or your washing machine every day. You no longer think of these things, particularly as technologies. You just think of them as a kind of everyday item. So when we have new technologies around, say, artificial intelligence, this will become a mundane reality for us. In many respects, it already is. You know, you recommend the systems on Netflix and uh, Prime are already kind of mundane versions of AI. It's just that we don't think of them that way. It's just uh, pointing us at something we might like to watch. Um, but they're artificial intelligence, and probably it's a different than we think about in terms of artificial intelligence as killer robot of Skynet and Terminator, which is probably the kind of most things that come to mind. And but they're also a kind of everyday reality as well, in the sense that when we think about the future, it's not just based on. Um, these new technologies and what they might be. It's also the myths and uh, and images we're seeing and we're, and we're bombarded with images of killer robots and the matrix, because generally that's more cooler than actually just getting recommender systems uh, on your browser. But um, so much of my world has been well, is, is around kind of thinking about what these worlds will be like what the challenges for society are and whether we actually really want these worlds. Um, You have to remember that most of the companies that are talking about these worlds are invested in them being the future that they want to do because they will make money out of them, which doesn't mean they're necessarily the most beneficial or the society, particularly in relation to climate change or using precious resources or uh, whatever it may be. So I think much of what my work does is challenge these kind of corporate norms 
of what the future should be like and allow us to ask, ask people interesting questions about what is the future they want and how should we get there and what might it be like when we actually arrive. So I think that's probably enough of a ramble for an introduction. So Mike, do you want to say something about kind of your work and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, my name is Michael Stead and I'm lecturer in sustainable design futures at Imagination at Lancaster University, the design school. Um, so yeah, my, my work, there's a lot of crossover with what Paul's just talked about, particularly in terms of looking at the future of things like climate change, use of resources, um, sustainability. So I have a particular focus on um, how design can help society to understand the implications of adopting new technologies, data-driven technologies, things like Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and edge computing, and how these can help us to, if, if we better understand these technologies, how we can potentially move to, um, towards achieving things like um, net zero futures and circular economy goals. And um, yeah, I, uh, as Paul's explained very well, um, this idea of speculative design or design fiction, um, using um, design techniques to, to think about these, uh, the future, sustainable futures, both positive and negative, and using those techniques to kind of engage people, whether they be citizens or technologists or um, civic leaders, to, to talk and debate and think about um, the implications of technologies and what 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 we can do to to um, lessen the impacts as as we move towards targets like net zero and circular economy. Is it worth perhaps saying something about defuturing at this point, Mike, and how the kind of futures also defuture? Yeah, um, it's there's a great concept defuturing. Tony Fry talks about defuturing in his book, uh, which I believe is from 2009. And um, it's this idea of by creating futures or uh, by using design to, to create a future, we potentially defuture other futures. And it's, it's this idea of like kind of thinking about um, what, we, what we might put in place can have an impact and implications for other futures, alternative futures. So we often um, rush to adopt technologies because of you know the economic benefits. Um, there might be potentially um, you know user benefits or benefits of people, things like health technologies. But uh, we often implement these technologies and, and uh, sort of you know across the board um, and without really ever thinking about the kind of implications of what what that that what might transpire by adopting these things. And there's this idea of defuturing, which is, is, is a great concept of um, thinking about, you know, um, instead of just adopting, we can kind of begin to debate and discuss what alternative futures could exist if, if we weren't to, to, to rush and just adopt um, new technological infrastructures, devices and systems. Um, Paul, you've been looking at defuturing as well. Yeah, I think my favorite probably quote that comes from Tony's work is that this notion that designers are, re are probably often relatively inequipped to consider what the consequences of the, their designs will be. 
in often that we're driven by a particular design brief to make something more efficient, faster. Um, and often that, that comes at a cost because you're using resources, you're potentially doing somebody a bit bad out of a job, which is, you know, a debate we're having around AI, you know, by creating something that makes something easier and efficient. Are you doing something out of a job? And also, are you limiting the potential effects of that? I mean, it's it's quite interesting in that regard in the in the relation of AI is whether AI is particularly a forward-looking technology in that it requires a history of data to work upon. So in other words, this is why we end up with so many problems around bias and uh, problematic um, profiling of people because our history is littered with that. And if we're based in this AI on historical data, then there's a chance that actually we um, imbue those qualities in these future systems and thus de-future a more open and equitable society. So I think it, it's that notion of forcing designers to kind of think about the unintended consequences, um, although it's not always that easy, but it, it, it's a kind of discipline that tries to force you to do that. So I think when we often talk about futures and alternate futures, in some ways we're also thinking about the defuturing of what these kind of corporate visions defuture from our societies and whether that, that it's worth that um, challenge. Um, and I think that's particularly interesting with the relation to Mike's work around sustainability in that um, a lot of the applications that we currently see are kind of solutionism in that they're solving problems that no, don't really exist. Um, so I wondered if Mike, if you want to expand on that a little bit and talk about kind of um, your work around gizmos and spines for a little bit about how that kind of rethinking where sustainability fits in gadgets um, is required. Yeah, yeah, sure. That that made me think about spines and gizmos when you just said that as well. Um, yeah, so um, there's this idea of spines, uh, Bruce Sterling's concept, which is uh, from the, the mid noughties um, and I did my ended up doing my PhD um, centered on the idea of spines. So they're kind of a, a class of future manufactured object, um, which um, as, as we've come into the last decade, it's quite synonymous with um, the internet of things, um, connected object um, that is able to be tracked and traced throughout its life cycle. So we have a lot of problems with e-waste and, um, you know, since, you know, mass production began uh, early to mid 20th century, you know, electronic goods, manufactured goods um, have um, created a lot of e-waste and using spines as a lens to to um, look at um, obsolescence, planned obsolescence and electronic waste uh, was something that I um, worked with Paul uh, for my PhD. And um, they can sit as, they, they kind of contrast with the idea of gizmos. So the IoT, um, the Internet of Things, um, connected objects, at present tends to be a lot of kind of these, these gadgets or gizmos, things that, as Paul said, are kind of uh, solutionist for 
solutionist sake. They kind of hook, hook a, um, an object up to the internet and um, uh, it generates data. Uh, but often the, the kind of the reason for doing so isn't particularly well thought through. Um, and it's, it's kind of just doing it because it's, it's, it, it has commercial benefits for the, the company that produces it, being able to, to use the data um sell the data on or use it use it for marketing often the, the functionality of these objects is is tied to being data driven as well which creates problems for um, obsolescent obsolescence problems because um once you know as we know um a lot of devices um need to be uh receive software updates quite regularly um so when there's uh, the point at which they they reach the point where they can't be updated due to uh, the, the new software, um, it, it means that they become obsolete. Um, they can't function as they were intended. Um, so the Spimes offers this kind of idea that you know we could potentially design these devices um, to be connected, but um, the connectivity is used as a means to make them more sustainable and improve their life cycle. So this this gets into some of the work that I'm doing with um, colleagues, including Paul, um, around uh, repair and upgrades and customization of devices. Um, if we can track parts, um, components, devices um, throughout their life cycle, um, we could potentially make them more sustainable. But on, the, on the other side, some of the work I've been doing as well looks at data. Um, so there's this, there's, there's there are problems around that, um, so that's potentially kind of linked to what we've just been talking about with the defuturing. With this kind of, you know, there might be you could, you could potentially design this new future that's built all around these kind of um, spines, but in in in, a, in the same breath that could um, defuture other sustainable futures because the spines are data driven objects and would you know uh, use a lot of data to 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 run. Um, so that would also have a big impact. So whether that impact negates the sustainable gains is problematic, but that's the point of us using, um, techniques like speculative design, design fiction to kind of, um, begin to explore these kind of futures, build these future worlds using design prototypes to, to sort of explore them and get people to talk about them and think, are these better than what's happening now? Um, if we were to implement this, would it be better? than this other alternative that we we could also show you. So I think that's the kind of benefit of design because we can kind of visualize and prototype the, these types of futures. Um, and that's what other disciplines potentially can't always do because uh, they often focus on the kind of, um, you know, here and now, what uh, short, the very, very much the short term, what can we put in place to kind of solve issues? Um, what's the kind of market or the, the you know economics around that and with design we can begin to kind of look a bit uh, not too far future but a, a bit more you know uh, more possibilities and the, the the pluralities of of different kinds of futures so i think that links paul with what you've been talking about in terms of um you know i know you were talking about ai there's also that this kind of plurality there's you know there's there's many futures that could could come up yeah i think yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's what we're doing is helping concretize these futures for people. Because um, 
to use a kind of Marshall McLuhan quote, we uh, looked through the future in a rear view mirror and we marked backwards towards it in that we tend to view the future from what we know now. And for most people, it's actually very difficult to actually imagine something that's radically different. Perhaps that's why there's this kind of common quote that it's harder to, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism because our whole kind of ethos is built around. So it's very difficult to imagine economic futures that are not based around what we've seen. And by helping kind of concretize alternate approaches, you help people kind of lead into this discussion of what futures could be and might be that is potentially different from the imagery that they're they've already been presented with it, which are often often these kind of corporate visions that present something uh, in a way that does it. And I think that's particularly one aspect of, it, uh, of the pluriverse, but in the sense that it allows alternate visions in the sense of not just a white Western view, but a view from um, different cultures, different genders, different ethnicities, these all have a different relationship with the future. And I think it's it's important to incorporate those and also maybe thinking about more than human futures in the sense of if the planet is something that we have to represent in our design as a potential maybe user or stakeholder within the, within the design process that we often forget often kind of design briefs is presented from a very particular perspective that you're addressing a particular client. Whereas actually we don't think about um, the other stakeholders who might be uh, the planet in terms of the biodiversity that might be limited. You know, it's interesting we think about data as this kind of ethereal concept that doesn't really have a footprint and a name. Data is a material, it instantiates itself in servers or farms, it takes energy, it takes power. All these things are limiting the potential for other things to occur. Um, you know, there are giant server farms in, in deserts around the world, but we don't think of them that way. We talk about the cloud, which sounds lovely and fluffy, and what harm could a cloud be? But actually, it's a material it has a, a an effect uh, and when we build these things we're digging up mountains uh, and we're digging or we're digging um, mines and that's having an effect on the planet you know and do we should we be thinking about the mountain as part of the stakeholders the things that live on it the weather it contains the soil all these things are actually part of what we should be thinking about in design going forward and I think this probably leads to our criticism of human-centered design as it's been espoused for the last 20 odd years maybe in that it puts the needs of the human user at the very center of consideration and that's arguably not doing us any favor because often that manifests it in, in terms of simplicity and the old thing about it's the task not the tool and actually, we're not thinking about the damage the tool can do. We're just thinking about how fast and efficient we're completing our task. And so by broadening up to this minor pluriverse of perspectives, it allows you to think about these kind of hard to 
imagine concept of what what what's it like for the climate what's it like for um, the planet by taking these resources and using them in this way what are we depriving as a consequence of that and so it opens up design to these bigger debates and maybe the consequences will be there'll be less design in some areas which as designers we should always be prepared to do that and say actually probably in this case it's better not to do something uh, rather than again drift into this perhaps solutionist mindset of let's solve a problem well we just have to decide what that is and we might not always get that right anyway um so i think that's why i think as well i think mike and i have been become kind of really preoccupied by the ideas of repair and maintenance which i'm old enough to remember repair shops on the high street and when you used to rent televisions and there was a bloke that you could take stuff to and he would mend it um and that's disappeared um and arguably that's something we need to back but we need to also design for those things you know we build products that aren't designed to be taken apart they they're designed generally just to be scrapped and um, they're not designed to be taken apart there's companies hold on to the details and the data about these products with almost a kind of passion that doesn't allow for people to go oh can I tinker with that? If you do, you, you know, you're often, oh, you'll break the warranty and we won't fix it for you. Well, actually, we should be moving away from those things, but it's probably going to require a change in policy and regulation to allow us to do that. Because I don't think, again, it's about breaking these bigger models uh, and thinking about alternatives in that way that I think is what we're trying to do. And I think what probably Mike's um, current work and the forthcoming work is going to explore in more detail. Can I say something briefly about the repair shop, Mike? Yes, the, the repair shop 2049. So that, yeah, so that, that links with what you've just been talking about, Paul. So um, this idea of, um, you know, future uh, repair services or repair models, looking at kind of the future of smart devices, there's gonna you know there's currently billions of them um being used and you know that's only gonna get worse uh the the impact of of using billions and billions of these devices so yeah it's kind of um brings into a lot what you've just been talking about this kind of this old this older model of uh kind of kind of repair services that we used to have where things were designed to be looked after and repaired and uh, elements, you know, reused. And um, the repair shop for uh, 2049 is going to be, um, we're going to be working with the, the making rooms in Blackburn and, and look at this idea of social community repair. The making rooms is a, is a, is a fab lab, a fabrication laboratory in, in Blackburn uh, town centre. So they use a lot of, uh, emerging tech to uh, things like 3D printing to design and build and also repair devices. So I think they'll be a great partner um, in kind of looking at this space. This is all kind of linked to the idea of right to repair. 
Um, so that's so when you've talked about policy there, there's um, you know ongoing movement um, and transition to this idea of a right to repair um, devices. Um, so uh, there was the, the the European Commission in 2020 um, built in some new uh, legal framework, some new policy, um, which came into effect uh, across the EU last year, July um, 2021, um, which gave, uh, gives citizens some right to repair their their um, devices, particularly like washing machines, dishwashers, TVs. But it's limited still; it doesn't go far enough. It, you know, it's we understand it's it's there to, to try and um, avoid planned obsolescence of these these objects, these physical goods, but it doesn't cover things like smart devices or Internet of Things connected objects, which are only growing in kind of the numbers of, of, of use um, and people are adopting these things all the time. So that's um, that's an area that's been kind of ignored at the moment. So, yeah, the repair shop 2049 is kind of looking at the future of repair, future of right to repair, um, trying to decentralise repair and um kind of localize some of the, some of these aspects of repair um because obviously as as we've talked about you know there's this these corporate uh, corporations big companies are in control a lot of the time and the right to repair gives citizens the ability to repair some of these these uh, some goods but i think there needs to be more kind of decentralization more um localization more giving communities the right to to sustain um, how they use and reuse these these objects, so I think that's um, that's kind of what that project's going to be looking at. So that's starting soon, and I think it's going to be a really exciting thing to be to be looking at with the making rooms in Blackburn. Yeah, I think there's you know there's an aspect of the right to repair doesn't necessarily give people the skills to repair. I think that's there's something that we want to explore through this as well of maybe thinking about what is it we're going to train people for in the future and what skills they were going to need. You know, IoT products are kind of interesting because they're a mix between hardware and software. And while it's relatively simple um, to update software, updating hardware is a more problematic notion. And it, we're in the odd situation now where we're kind of buying smart objects uh, but that hardware can go into obsolescence and the company like, say, the Sono speakers, um, they were, after a point they get bricked. So you've just got this expensive lump of electronics that you can't do anything with. Um, so what is it that we need to skills? Is it um, do we need to get the companies to hand over the details of how to um they might be reconnected to the internet and used across a different service. Is that something that we need to guarantee in the right? That it's not just giving people the right to repair, that in the future, the model may you might have to make the details of the device open source after a certain thing so people can actually use it. But that's a going to require significant policy change and also equipping people with the skills. And it may be that, you know, we need an equivalent of a car mechanic for future products and devices. So we reaffirm repair and maintenance as skills for the future, um, which we seem to have lost. Even if you look at cars now, that 
arguably they've got more complicated. You need fancy machines to do the simple service to update the software and whatever. And actually, it's almost de-skilled some aspects of the traditional mechanic being able to look at almost any vehicle. Um, electric vehicles bring in their own challenges in that actually you're probably closer to an electrician than you are another thing. So I think all these kind of futures aren't just about technology. They're they're going to produce or require profound changes within society and the way we do things. And design has a role in this of thinking about those or enabling people to ask the tough questions um, and get away from the shiny vision that's just chromium plated and white wall where everything works seamlessly and beautifully whereas actually it'll be messy you know because we all have houses full of really old stuff and really new stuff we don't have this point in time where we suddenly get rid of all our old stuff and buying new stuff it perhaps would be nice but it it's not the reality that we live in and actually design for me is the one of the few disciplines that embraces that kind of messiness and allows us to think how do we embrace the mess and work within it rather than trying to produce a nice clean point and say oh we're not do we're not bothering with that anymore and um, we'll just scrap it and the thing and, and we actually have to get stuck in and say yeah we've got to maintain these things we've got to repair them that's the only way that we're going to change the habits that we've got into around um, producing things that have a very limited time lifespan. And the amount of electronic we waste we produce is horrendous. Although the, our UK government much hails its green credentials, what a lot of these figures don't count is the waste that you import by buying goods from overseas and the manufacturing costs that go there. So actually, we're importing tons and tons of electronic waste, which doesn't go off on our figures because we're not manufacturing it. But it's actually a reality. And we could be doing more to offset that by making it more of repair and maintenance. I'm probably ranting and rambling now. So I, I'm just wondering whether it's at a point where we should think about closing it. I think that was good, Paul. I was just going to say that's that's kind of like yeah, that that's a that's a you know that's a a, a lens or a a point of um, exploration for the repair shop twenty forty nine uh, project and moving beyond that. Um, this idea that you know um, there's there's local production and consumption and repair, um, and that's what I think kind of. Fab Lab, why they can be central to that kind of future, because um, you know they, they 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 do that thing, they do those kind of things locally. Uh, they're they're engaged in the community. Um, you know they work with lots of different stakeholders, and that's what the project's going to do. It's going to be working with citizens, repairers, makers, um, technologists, and um, you know people with the council. And because at the heart of the community, um, there's that kind of this idea that you were talking about. Um, you know who's going to do who's going to do it it might not necessarily be citizens um themselves it might be you know these yeah these skilled there might be you know opportunities and new economies new markets for kind of skilled people skilled workers who can 
um, you know, repair these kind of goods as that's that and that's their their kind of day to day their day to day work. So um, I think that's that's why it's quite quite a um, exciting area to be for us to be looking at. I think. I think it's it's a valid point. I think you know it's interesting. You know we talk we talk about the re reinvigoration of the high street, and it's you know could the high street be these kind of repair shops and maintenance and things that you know go in and have a coffee and let somebody mend something or repair any things. Maybe that's a more kind of sustainable and resilient future for our high states, actually, to look back at some of these things that used to exist um, and see whether they're actually, we've lost something by defuturing the way we manufactured them and actually that was potentially a really good one yeah exactly i think you know that's it isn't it we've we've kind of created uh this this present that has defutured other pasts so um you know and potentially some of those things had had benefits that we didn't see at the time and we, we've kind of adopted all the, these these infrastructures and that aren't sustainable so you know lost lost, lost futures basically aren't they so um yeah you know there could be potential to look back at some of those things which we we are doing with the repair shop you know looking at all the kind of that's that's some of the sort of influence old repair kind of strategies and repair shops and things like that so uh, yeah perhaps at this point we could drift into an ending of the sex pistols no future and then call it it <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> bye folks and thanks for listening Further details and links about what has been discussed in the show, plus a transcript and information about how you can get in touch with us, are in the show notes. Do check out our website, where you can discover links to other episodes and more about imagination and the people we work with. Thank you for listening.